Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Nikki Segnit, the award-winning author of the Flavour Thesaurus. And now the Flavour Thesaurus, more flavours. A butternut squash has a very similar flavour to a chestnut and so, you know, and so on and so on, that if you could kind of plot it and then divide them up into themes, fat flavour families, as I call them, um, then you'd have this really rather lovely way of organising the book. The original Flavour Thesaurus, published in 2011, has been called a masterpiece and is widely seen as a modern classic, with its flavour pairings format inspired by Roger's Thesaurus. This sequel is all about plant-led pairings, giving us imaginative and ingenious ideas to make our plant-forward diets just so much more interesting. I asked her how you update a modern classic. Uh, just uh, just rather simply, really, because there are so many flavours that weren't covered in the original book. So um, the first book is 99 Flavours. Uh, and it was supposed to be 100, but I ran out of time and didn't write Courgette. Um, and so... Uh, the new one came about when I was just, I suppose I was just collecting a list of the things that I wish that I had written about and that other people had told me that they wished that I'd written about, like all these just, you know, things like courgette, green beans, things that gardeners here have a glut of. And, um, you know, I think there was quite a big step in terms of ingredients that had gone from being niche in 2007, 2008, when I was writing the first book and things that had become much more commonly used or were creeping into even mainstream kitchens like, let's say, miso, uh, rye flour, pomegranates, that kind of thing. I mean, let's just for a moment revisit the Flavour Thesaurus number one. I mean, Kate Winslet is a fan. Elizabeth Luard, Atul Kocha, John Tarode, Fiona Beckett, even my mate Nicholas Lezard. Everyone says the same things. It's erudite, witty, inventive, serendipitous, delightful, imaginative, all of which you could say about uh, the new book. I mean, how did it feel to come up with something that turned into such a success? I mean, I do a lot of food writing retreats here. And so we're constantly sort of drilling down and trying to find what you want to say to whom and why. Can you take us back, um, you know, scroll back the years to, to coming up with that original idea? It was really simple. I think I was just, I was quite, I was very into cooking, as I'm sure lots of people that come on your retreats are. So it's kind of starts from there. And then I did a wine course um, because I bought this really great bottle of wine from Waitrose and I suddenly became very curious about what that was in comparison to the kind of things that I was drinking. Uh, the wine course opened me up to understanding how we taste and um, how we put that into words. And I think the final moment was the, I mean, there was also there's quite a lot of stuff in the ether about flavour pairings because of Heston Blumenthal at the Fat Dark and, you know, there was a lot of interest in weird flavour combinations. Uh, and then someone paired butternut squash and blueberries on um, MasterChef and got loads of praise. And so I think the next day I thought I'd like more praise for my cooking. So I went out to buy a book about, you know, how different flavours go together. And I think I kind of, in a way, must have known that that didn't exist because I knew an awful lot about uh, good food books. And I had a lot, you know, a, a, a big collection myself. Uh, but when, you know, I had a proper hunt for it, I started looking online looking overseas and couldn't find anything so 
I kind of joked that I'd write it myself. And then about a week later, I was sitting at my desk in my big advertising agency where I worked as a brand consultant. And the title, The Flavour Thesaurus, just came into my head from, you know, as if it was posted there. And I just knew then that I had a format uh, that I could make the idea work for. I mean, it took a while to then... Um, draw up the list of what the you know what the main ingredients would be of this book and then start to kind of um, yeah write some samples Uh, but I wrote uh, four sample chapters I think and that and a proposal I was quite good at writing a proposal because advertising yeah writing a proposal is a bit like writing an advertising brief so it's all about distilling stuff and understanding kind of being very accurate about what you're attempting to do before you start doing it yeah and uh so that got me an agent really quickly um a literary agent and then uh and then we kind of worked on the proposal shined it up a bit sent it out and then it got loads and loads and loads and loads of rejections (laughs) (laughs) of course i mean go on how many rejections did you actually i don't know she stopped telling me because i think (laughs) like the first i think i think they often do it went out to six publishers um including richard atkinson at bloomsbury who she my agent zoe always thought would be the person who would be most interested but he was working on the river cottage fish book which is you know a massive book so he didn't look at it and and so yeah i think then it went out to another six and then she stopped telling me uh and then eventually richard finished the river cottage fish book and he made an offer but that was a really yeah. long time. I was like back. I'd given up my job quite a while before um, I finished the proposal and gone freelance. So I was just working. I think I, was, I said I was working on a really boring piece of research for Fairy Liquid. When I got out of the meeting, I had a message from the agent saying that they'd had an offer. And that was, yeah, that was very exciting. Amazing. I mean, we we had Emma Bell on um, the the writing retreat last week, uh, talking about how an agent actually gets you a deal and and what that process is all about. And it is actually about working with them on the proposal as well. Did Zoe work with you on the proposal? She was kind of more involved, I think, from what I can remember, with the chapters giving, but she just liked it. I mean, the chapters that are in the proposal um, are the chapters that are in the book. I mean, very little happened to them in between those things. I think the thing is, is the book was conceived very much as it is. It's a very simple idea. That's the first thing you said. You said it was simple. I thought, is it? God, there seems so much in it. But actually, what you've come up with is a format. And if you come up with a title and it all falls into place, you just do lots of it, don't you? Give us the format. It's a thesaurus, isn't it? Uh, It's... Well, yeah, there are different types, but it's Roger's really, which is the idea, which is at the back, it's um, a list of ingredients uh, by uh, alphabetically and what they go with. But each of them has a page reference. So you can turn to the front and the front is that's an elaboration on every one of the pairings in the back. So if you want to know a little bit more uh, and they're very various in their approach. 
And we'll go through those in your full food moments as an example. But what's it really interesting and so timely about the more flavours, the new edition, as it were? I mean, it's a completely different book. It's a completely different book, but you're following exactly the same format um, 12 years later. It's about plants. Um, it's such an interesting time to bring a book like this out um, because it has plants have had their own journey. Uh, when you first wrote The Flavour Thesaurus, vegetarians were begging you for pairings for them too. There were omissions, but it didn't feel like an omission at the time, did it? It's just, it's it's an omission now because of the narrative of where plants are in our culinary culture. Yeah, it started out that I, everything on the list that I wanted to write about, everything was a plant except one thing, which was duck. And it just seemed crazy to have this one, this book that had one meat in it. So I took it out <laughs> and uh, Richard Atkinson was still around at the time and we talked about how this one would be plant-led and and in fact when we were talking about it um I think probably the world was the world this country at least was at its height of um interest in vegan and the kind of if you like the vegan explosion um and uh I thought well that's fine you know this will be a vegan book just out of you know just out of interest and curiosity to you know to to be creative in a way it's going to be an interesting process well it lasted two weeks before I realized that this was not a vegan book and it was not a vegetarian book even and so it says plant-led and I think that is the right term for it really so it's it does mention meat it does mention fish it does assume that I think my audience the people that I'm writing for are just really into cooking or cocktail making and so that they've they've come to the book for information about flavor and 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 so that's the guiding principle really rather than any kind of diet there's never any you know I never talk about health kind of stuff that's not but you do talk about waste, and that is really important. I mean, the, the, the driver now for the way we eat, as far as I'm concerned anyway, is, is about the planet. And it's a, you know, we know that if waste were a country, it would be the third co- largest country in the world. Um, so this is also how to reduce back of the fridge waste. Um, I think you say this, actually, you're more likely to leave a lettuce to go slimy than to forget to cook a steak. Um, and 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 one of the really interesting things that jumped out at me was you quote this study by the, the 2019 study by the World Resources Unit, which shows the use of sensory flavour descriptors making a huge difference to consumer perception of vegan and veggie food. And this must sort of speak directly to your advertising brain. If you talk about food in a different way, people will change their habits. Were you driven to drive people's habits or did you just want to introduce people to more flavours? I'm probably not going to introduce many people to more flavours. I think most people that come to the book will be familiar with what's there. But it's more about more flavour combinations, more ways to eat things, particularly things that perhaps are quite, you know, have been around for us for a long time. Things like green beans, where we don't necessarily have more than a few ideas in our head and we do the same things with them. So it's about expanding that repertoire. That 
in itself helps with waste, particularly the way that food is packaged up in this country. You know, we often have half bags of things. You look at them, you don't particularly want to make the thing that you made before. So you need a, a different idea. What can I do to see if I like this food in a particularly different way? And I think the, you know, the idea that we describe plant food in a more exciting sensory way, see them a little bit more for what they actually are rather than some of the kind of basic ideas that we hold in our head for them. Just those things, just appreciating them and valuing them in the same way because, you know, that study that you cite is it's so interesting how, you know, cult, the cultural value that people put on meat and fish and what happens if you start to try and put a bit more of that cultural value on um on fruits and particularly on you know vegetables and salad and just give them a similar kind of focus um, so that it isn't just always eat this because it's good for you or eat this because it's good for the planet. Tell us about the flavour families and the flavour wheel. That's in both books. I mean, it was that was just much more <laughs> driven by... Um, so when I got to the end of the, the writing the first book, uh, obviously because I love Roger's thesaurus and I love the way that the front section is organized in philosophical themes. So obviously if you're a writer, then you use that thesaurus a lot and you use it to kind of guide your thinking or improve your thinking or refine your thinking. And it always struck me that that it was in the back of my mind that I needed something that was also quite interesting as a way of organising the book. I didn't want the book to be alphabetical at all. I mean, that would just be so bland. It really came back to when I started writing the book, um, and I think even perhaps in the proposal, I had found a flavour wheel from a a flavour science textbook. And I mean, I just, I I love an infographic. Uh, And so I remember being quite caught up in in that because it was divided into flavour families. I'd never seen that before. Uh, and towards the end of the book, it, I realised that everything that I knew about the ingredients I was working with, I could sort of plot them around a spectrum so that one ran into the next, run into the next. So something like, say, a butternut squash has a very similar flavour to a chestnut and so, you know, and so on and so on. That If you could kind of plot it and then divide them up into themes, flavour families as I call them, um, then you'd have this really rather lovely way of organising the book that is potentially quite interesting. Um, you know, it depends on how deep you go into the subject, but I know some people really, you know, some people just really enjoy thinking about that. And, um, you know, one of the things that the book is very good at, I think, is teaching people to taste, teaching people to describe taste and flavour, uh, and just, just kind of dividing them to flavour families, the kind of thing that you see on the back of a wine label is um you know it's a bit well, and it inspires the imagination doesn't it i mean i love gerd loyal's flavor chords uh, to take a, a musical analogy once you start playing with mm. different flavors then what about kind of giving it a bit of a minor tone with this or that it's it kind of it, it excites the imagination um you talk about the difference between taste and smell um taste is only detected as you say in the, in the tongue and in the mouth and it's a reminder that you know it is the basic salt sweet sour bitter umami and flavor comes from smell 
and you say that it is inescapably subjective. Let's start going into your food moments to put some stories, to put some you around some of the combinations um, that you gave me. Um, the white butter bean and mustard, for example, for your first food moment. Um, tell me why you chose that one. Well, I chose that. So that's uh, it's one of the um, things that I really deeply remember from eat, uh, being a vegetarian. So I was vegetarian from about... 16 to about 24 I think and uh, so I used to work in Soho uh, and um, there was a Cranks in Soho I'm sure you remember Cranks I do. made very brown very cumin heavy um, vegetarian it, I food <laughs> I think I quite I mean I was, I was quite grateful for it I probably couldn't have afforded it very often but at payday I might go and have something that at least had been cooked by someone who knew what they're doing because all this time I really did not know how to cook uh, which is quite unfortunate as a vegetarian <laughs> and then uh, I see now and then um, if I was feeling really energetic I might walk to Covent Garden and go to Food for Thought in Neil Street again another kind of like landmark place uh, and their food I think was a bit more exciting a bit fresher a bit more the influence seemed wider I don't know, maybe they just, they had a little bit more of a relationship with sour <laughs> than cranks, which I mean, just was so deeply cumin-y. And, um, and anyway, I bought this butter bean Dijonese and went back to my desk and ate it and just was in heaven. It was so fantastic. It had cauliflower in it, it had leeks in it. It was just, it was really vibrant. And, uh, and every now and again, I would trot off to uh, to Neil Street. I mean, it was about fifteen minute walk, but at that age, it seemed like a, it seemed like a real hike. And um, and you know, hope that it was there. And every, I mean, really, every time I see a tin of butter beans, I'd still be thinking about this <laughs> recipe. I bought the recipe book because they had one. I think I probably even bought it in the shop. And um, and then you know, I couldn't cook, so there's no way that I made that. Uh, and I think the recipe book would have been given away to the charity shop with all the other ones that I'd never used and um and then when I came to write this book I thought I've got to write about that you know and I wonder if it is anything like as good because you know obviously things have moved on a lot um I wonder if it's as good as I remember so I mean obviously you can go and find a second-hand cookery book so easily but I got a copy of it and it turned up and it's from came from Germany and this book is just full of notes but I mean, it just makes me laugh so much because every now and I come across one, it's always got lots of German notes with um, <laughs> exclamation marks. And uh, anyway, I looked at it and it requires four saucepans and one roasting tin. And I thought, well, that's why I didn't make it because there was no way I wouldn't have even had four saucepans. Um, but I made it and it was exactly as good as I remember. It was just fantastic. And it's just the combination of those two different flavours that you wouldn't necessarily think to put together. I think what's really... Well, I, when I think about it, I think it's um, it's a pulse, an allium, a cruciferous vegetable. You know, I wonder the degree to which you can take those, you know, those three things. And then it's a very Frenchified sauce. It's got Dijon mustard, it's got lots of white wine, and it's got um, ground coriander are pretty much the only flavorings in it i think you they say you, you can put dill in it which is which is nice but not necessary but it's there is something about it that it was perhaps a bit more like a there's something yeah quite like a french meal and there's enough substance in there to just serve it with a green salad it has a gratin topping it's just fantastic a really great recipe so i have 
simplified the recipe and that is in the yeah and i i had lunch with simon hope who first worked at food for thought uh, back in those days and came to brighton to set up food for friends um which changed the Brighton landscape and whose chefs from Food for Friends then went to set up Terra Terre. So, I mean, you know, in terms of vegetarian oh. food, it all started at Food for Thought. <laughs> yeah, it was really yeah. good. Yeah, your second food moment is broad bean and pecorino. Now, you've got a story around it. The version that's in this book, it's uh, raw broad beans and pecorino. So you, um, so it comes back to a little Italian um tradition that in may when the broad beans are coming in and they're still like um baby's fingernail size you take the pods and you get some pecorino and you just sit there and shell the pods and eat the raw beans with bits of pecorino well i i think i'd read so many accounts of it on one day when i was writing the book that i <laughs> you know and it's all about how you know going off on these picnics in lovely sort of warm balmy rome and uh, on the day that I was researching it, it was it was May in this country, but it was grey and it was drizzling. And my, I have twins who were at nursery at the time and I had to walk a mile and a half to the nursery in the rain to pick them up. And on the way, I stopped in the shop and bought some pecorino and I bought I picked out the smallest broad beans I could find, which, as you know, are never that small in this country. I bought a bottle of wine. Uh, I asked the guy in the wine shop, which wine goes with raw broad beans which shumped him and then I bought a nice bit of white bread my husband was away so I was doing all the childcare and working full-time I walked back up the hill a mile and a half in the rain and then when I put the kids to bed I put the broad beans on a big pile on my um, kitchen table and got a nice wine glass out and poured a cold glass of wine sliced the bread got the best olive oil out and put the cheese on a board and uh, there's a picture of it on my Instagram, actually, because, uh, oh, my God, it was just the one of the most memorable meals of my life. It was just so wonderful because I think I was really tired. I was very taken by the romance of this meal and, the, and just the idea of it just transferred onto, you know, cold, tired, grey night. And I love that transporting nature of what food can do. And in fact, actually, I just... I thought I was going to, you know, I was going to eat that and then maybe have something else or go and like watch a TV, read a book. I didn't. I just sat there and really slowly enjoyed this beautiful cheese and the, the crunch of the beans with the kind of salty kind of sheepy tang. Oh, it was just a beautiful moment. And, Inescapably uh, subjective, as you say. And I think that that's what's so interesting about the book is it is full of these stories. It is not just a very dry thesaurus. It brings it to life with these wonderful stories. Uh, it, your fourth food moment is, is is one of those. But before we go into that, your third food moment is actually a pairing of, of flavours that I would never have thought about. I'd never really think about using rye anyway. Rye and cranberry. Yeah, I picked this because um, both of the flavors, I mean, this happened a lot. I think this happened more with this book than it did with the other. But then, as I say, I think we can be quite fixed in our ideas of plants uh, and bringing them, like really thinking about them, spending a lot of time trying them in different guises. Uh, And also, in some cases, reading really good stuff that's written about them. Rye has... Um, Rye is unusual and it has quite a lot of interesting stuff written about it. Um, And... The combination is a combination of rye breadcrumbs, 
a thing mixed with sugar in the way that you might do if you were about to make um, a brown bread ice cream. So it's so a lovely kind of sweetened breadcrumbs, a layer of those, a layer of some sour cream and then some a cranberry compote. And then you kind of do the layers again. So actually it becomes, I suppose, if it was a, uh, like in the lateral cooking, it would be a trifle or a tiramisu, one of those things that's kind of cream and um, uh, and a sort of spongy layer in a way. And it's a Latvian um, dessert. But it's just it's just really, A, it's a really interesting way of trying rye and cranberry because you probably don't, probably haven't ever eaten something like that. Cranberry is very odd, I think. you If you try one raw, which maybe you should do next Christmas when you have the chance, it has very, very little flavour. It's actually a bit like eating a raw potato. It's got that kind of very crisp cellulose texture with that very shiny kind of popping um, skin. And when you cook it, it doesn't have that much more flavour, really. It just has a very kind of vague, jammy fruitiness. It tastes a little bit, if anything, a bit like um, unsweetened, uh, not very good uh, Bramley apple. It doesn't really have a great deal going for it but you know when you mix it with cream and when you mix it with kind of sweet mm. you know like a sweet crust or something mm. so most old cranberry desserts were actually cranberry tarts mm. it, it is good at kind of setting off that kind of thing yeah i mean it is as ottolenghi said about it ingenious um the bedtime reading element is what i really like about the book um it is you know who'd have thought you'd take basically a sort of a you know a thesaurus to bed with you but this final food moment is is the example um tell us about this edible postcard of pine nut and apple uh, i think we all have these moments in our life and it's very good if you want to write about food to try and concentrate on one and summon it up. It really helps also if you make the food that you're talking about and eat it. It's surprising how the flavour of something can bring back um, very small details and like uh, you know of things that you might have forgotten. Um, uh, so the pine nut and apple. Well, <laughs> it's a story about um, my husband and I going off to Venice, and we. Do you remember when like? the um budget airline started and suddenly we could all afford, afford yeah. to go away for the weekend yeah. and i think we bought these tickets to go to venice and we were really excited because they were really cheap and it was the reason that they were really cheap i think is that everywhere in venice that you could stay was booked up so the only place that we could stay was on one of the islands quite a lot 45 minutes on a boat evaporetto ride from uh um, st mark square so it's like you say it's the croydon of venice yeah okay i'll probably get into trouble for that but you know we it was not an island where we wanted to spend our evening it was quite depressing and um uh a million tourists would disagree but anyway so we we basically went into uh we planned this night out in venice where we would uh go for dinner and then uh go to the uh go to the port area where the last vaporetto would be leaving at about 11 o'clock and uh we'd have a drink in the port and it would that would be fine that would be a sunday night but we would still make it back to our um gloomy island and unfortunately uh the dinner wasn't very good and we <laughs> we went to the find a bar and just that there wasn't anything open i'm not making a very good job of telling this it's much better when i actually get the chance to, it wasn't anything open and we ended up 
going looking for a bar, hearing the sound of a bar, walking into this place. The place turned out to be somebody's actual house rather than... Uh, it was their courtyard of their house, but they kind of said, we'll stay and have a drink anyway. And we ended up having a drink with them, but the kind of things that they offered to drink weren't necessarily things you find in a legal bar. And uh, and things kind of unraveled from there. But the great, you know, did we make the boat home or not? You have to read it to find out. <laughs> but you did get to eat the cake at the bottom of your handbag. Oh, God, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Sorry, yes. So... Yeah, so by the time we actually, I, God knows what we had been drinking, but by the time we, we I, I swear to God, we jumped on the boat as the rope was being pulled away from the deck. And there was nobody else on the boat apart from my husband and I and uh, some guys playing cards. But an, earlier in the evening, when we'd been kind of doing the before dinner promenade, I'd seen this cake in one of the Venetian cake shops, something I'd never seen before. It was called Pinza. And it just happened to be one of those most perfect things that you have, you know, a, a, a beautiful, quite damp cake. And it had pine nuts and slices of apples in it. And we just, we sat on the boat with our feet up on the, on the rails. Um, in your new breeze. Chinese silk slippers. In Come my on. Chinese silk slippers that I'd also <laughs> bought. Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, if you're in this kind of situation, any kind of uh, tourist situation, I think it's always a good idea to have a bit of cake in your handbag. Yeah. The, si the silk slippers you could probably do without, but um, <laughs> oh my God, that cake. And I, of course, it probably wasn't the most delicious cake in the world, but at that time... It was a perfect Having night. not had the best meal, it was just, oh, it's like... Yeah, the dessert of your it's, dreams. It's a lovely picture you painted. Leaving the main island of Venice, going back to Croydon with your silk slippers <laughs> and your pine nut and apple cake at the bottom of your handbag. You say that Italian, Chinese and Indian are, are your real sort of culinary uh, go-tos now in terms of plant. You've rediscovered just how incredibly inventive they always are. Um, let's just give a plug to some of the amazing restaurants that you, you do talk about, Giacconi, for example. Ottolenghi, obviously. Mildred's. Just yeah. great places. I mean, t down here in Brighton, a terre a terre, um, are still food for friends going strong. There are so many places all around the country now. Where, where outside of London and Brighton would you really kind of say, these are the places that are really inspiring new inventive flavourings? Uh, well, I wish I knew, Chilly. I have to say, I don't get out very often because I still have really... My, the, the twins are still very small. Yes. So the idea of kind of going out and, um, A, getting away from London, getting away from my writing desk is a little bit rarer than it should be, perhaps. And But, I mean, I suppose, isn't Bristol and Bath yeah. the place to be, really? Yeah. I mean, that's what everyone tells me. And I think I'm off to toppings in a couple of... A uh, couple of weeks' time, and have started to draw up a Bristol list. Bristol is extraordinary. Um, do you feel, when you're reading it back now, uh, knowing as much as you do about the kind of the vegetarian or the plant-forward landscape, does it feel pioneering to you? Do you still feel like you're ahead of the curve, or do you feel like you're capturing? Is this a snapshot of how we're beginning to live? I think. Um, well, I, you know, I, I don't know whether I feel like the books are about the way we cook I think that they are slightly removed from that in their way which is um they are books that like no other I mean there aren't any other books that talk about flavor in this way and you know the mixture of 
uh, flavour science and kind of tasting notes and other people's tasting notes and the agriculture and the horticulture, all the stuff that goes into making them what they are is, you know, is not the place where most people are are looking or doing their research. I suppose, you know, the uh, the first one came out in 2010. It's now 2023. It still sells really well. People are still discovering it. The, You know, it gets used by all the uh, people, well, not all the people, but a lot of people who are doing Bake Off and MasterChef and stuff. I think the fact is it just has content that you don't get anywhere else. It's, you know, lots of tasting notes, flavour science, all that kind of stuff. That's what drives the book being interesting is at the heart of it. It's something completely unique. Um, the voice obviously is, you know, is quite unusual in terms of taking a subject that might potentially be quite dry and making it engaging, I hope. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't really think it's not like a, you know, like recipe books do age. And, you know, even if you're writing um uh, with a, you know, the idea of trying to make something classic, there's, it's it's quite difficult not to make it age. So I think, but they're different. You know, these are different. If you want to kind of think, find twenty different ways of describing rye flavour or what do plums taste like, there's no other book that's going to do that for you. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Food Chili Smith, and on Substack where you'll find a little extra bites each week. Just search for Chili Smith on Substack. I'll see you next week.